Welcome everyone to the She Can Fix It podcast, a monthly podcast consisting of interviews with female surgeons to highlight and empower the women of orthopedic surgery. My name is Dr. Alana Munger, and I'm a second year resident here at Yale. On this episode, we have a fantastic interview with Dr. Liz Gardner. Dr. Gardner is a Yaley through and through. She did her undergraduate work here and played both lacrosse as well as field hockey. She did her residency here and is also one of the team physicians for Yale Athletics. When I came to New Haven from the West Coast, Dr. Gardner was one of the people who welcomed me and made me feel like I was part of the Yale family, which I'm very, very grateful for. It was truly a pleasure to speak with Dr. Gardner, and I hope you all enjoy our conversation. Dr. Gardner. How are you? Good. How are you? Good. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for speaking with me, agreeing to talk with me. We finally set up a time in our busy schedules. Got it done. Um, I was hoping you can introduce yourself to our listeners and describe your background, where you did med school, residency, fellowship, and all that jazz. All right. So I start a little bit before that. I grew up in New Hampshire, Mm -hmm. um, so that's a big part of who I am, just being from sort of rural, small town. Made my way down here to New Haven to Yale as an undergrad, where I was fortunate enough to play field hockey and lacrosse uh, during my time, and that obviously get further into this really obvious impacted um, what I do now and why I'm here and why I'm so passionate about it. So after spending four years here playing sports, pre-med, that sort of thing, I took two years off and went to the UK for a couple years and was actually a boarding school teacher at a old school found in 1556, <laughs> got women like five years ago sort of thing, right. boarding school in England. Um, so I taught science and coached mm-hmm. field hockey and just really had some time to breathe and grow up and really sort out what I wanted to be because mm-hmm. everything I had done to that point had been about planning for the next step right. and getting there. Mm-hmm. And this was the first time that I really, you know, I knew I wanted to go to medical school, but I got to step back and really work on some of the things of me as a person not doing homework all the time and not preparing for the next test, but really kind of saying, okay, how, what do I need to do to be a better doctor? And a lot right. of that was communication mm-hmm. and growing up and not being a professional student. And so I did that for two years and probably could have stayed there very happily <laughs> in a nice little, you know, Harry Potterville. Right. Um, but ultimately came back to, came back home and went to medical school in Atlanta. Um, really wanted to get out of the Northeast where I had grown up at a very narrow sense of this country and I was abroad for 9-11 and that really was an impactful, obviously impactful Mm -hmm. event, but I was the only American in town and Mm. this happened within three, four weeks of getting there. And so my identity of being an American and what, who I was, I didn't, I realized I didn't know that. I've been Mm -hmm. around people who were just like me my whole life. So went down to Emory with the purpose of living in another part of the country and seeing seeing a different part of America and understanding what what all that was and really chose it for Grady Hospital and right. the opportunity to be in a place where mm-hmm. medical students are not supernumerary at all. Um, but if we weren't there, stuff didn't get done and patients didn't de- get taken care of. Yeah. And so it really was a phenomenal opportunity to be in that environment and, and be hands-on and be an essential member of the team mm-hmm. as, a, as a medical student, which I'm not sure happens. I mean, that wasn't every rotation, but I don't no. think that necessarily happens 
happens any, everywhere. No, it's true. Um, so knew I wanted to do orthopedics. I was that person. Frankly, I decided I wanted to do orthopedics freshman year of college, but it's fine. Um, but so I was that person all through med school who really knew what they wanted to do right. uh, pretty narrowly. And then was fortunate enough to come back up to Yale where I reconnected with Peter Jokel, mm -hmm. who had been my undergraduate thesis advisor. And I actually started working with him my freshman year of college. Wow. So, yep. So down a lot of our, a lot of the nurses um, in our clinic were down there, you know, back in the late 90s. And oh. So as a freshman and spent my summers working down there and really understanding what that was. And right. so I was fortunate enough to reach out to him, came back up here for residency. Phenomenal experience that you're going through at this point. Indeed. I'm, I'm sure every moment of it is phenomenal. <laughs> get, the glasses get rosier exactly. as, as you need, but really... You know, same sort of thing. Wanted to be in an institution where my hands were going to get dirty and where residents really were running the show. And right. I, I had that without a doubt. Went out to Michigan uh, for my fellowship. Wanted to see college sports on the highest level. And mm -hmm. so made major program where there's no expense spared, recognizing that my goal was ultimately to come back here to Yale mm -hmm. and grow this program and right. really turn athletic medicine and sports medicine at Yale into the academic program that it should be because yeah. you know we have all of these resources around us and that's so much of what I think makes sports medicine cool and how we're, you know, how we're pushing the envelope and providing the student athletes the best care mm -hmm. is by utilizing everything we have around us. So came back six years, seven years ago at this point um, from Michigan mm -hmm. and been here ever since. I know. And you talk about being a student athlete and you were a two sports student athlete, right. which I think is absolutely amazing because I was a one sports student athlete and I'm just like... I can't even imagine Times doing two. Yeah, yeah, but it's just, it's insane. And I think what's amazing was that there was a paper published from the Mayo Clinic um, that was published in the Yellow Journal that actually investigated grit and perseverance and conscientiousness. And what I think is the first thing that I thought was hilarious was the fact that grit was measured by a questionnaire, which is amazing. Yes. Um, but it actually st uh, found that former student athletes had more grit and perseverance than those who did not play varsity sports in college. And the study also found that females demonstrated more grit and conscientiousness than their male colleagues. Um, so do you think that your life as a two-sport varsity athlete here at Yale prepared you for medical school and residency and beyond? A absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, what you go through, you lived it. You know, it is, it's challenging. It is a full-time job to yeah. be a student athlete at the Division One level. And, and things are different now, you know, looking at how you do two sports and that sort of thing. Th things are different now. Mm -hmm. But, you know, just being able to find that balance. I mean, I remember it was essentially about eight hours out of your day when, right. you, when you calculate what it is to between getting lunch, getting out to the fields, getting taped up, warmed up, whatever treatments you have to do, doing your three hour practice, coming in, yeah. sitting in the ice bath, getting yeah. yourself back into dinner. And then, and so those eight hours are gone. And then you're also so dead now, you can't keep your eyes open. So not only have you lost that time, but you are so physically exhausted yeah. that the thought of now, you know, hunkering down to do your orgo P set is just, not in the mood. Not in the mood, mm -hmm. exactly. And so, it, but just sort it out. Right. And so I think you get creative 
and I think that you really, yeah, you, you find that grit, you figure out how you work. And I right. think that's a lot of what grit is about is everybody's a little bit different in how they approach it, but it's kind of the, just the get it done factor. Yeah. And no, you can't write a script. It's hard to give people much advice on like, how, how do you be more grit? You gotta sort that out on your own. And some yeah. of that is just, you know, the forced adversity and self-imposed adversity of, you know, the time constraints, but also just there's ups and downs in sports and there's injuries and not every game goes well. And there's, and how do you deal with it? You know, having, I remember having on the front, well, it was the back page because that's where sports were, you know, <laughs> but, the, but the headline of the article when we lost to Harvard in field hockey one year is, well, we would have won if Gardner had marked her girl. No. And, and true statement. Wow. Like it's, it's, how, how do you deal with that? Yeah. And, and it's, you're getting called out and you learn to not take per things personally. And I think as you then get into medicine and especially a field like orthopedics where it is a bit more male dominated and things are perhaps a little bit more directly communicated than, you know, women may do, right. good or bad, um, that you, you just kind of learn to not necessarily let it roll off your back, but right. you learn how to take what you need for feedback out of that and then move on from it. So. Yeah. No, I, I think I couldn't agree more with what you know with what the study says. I think we see it. You know, if you there have been plenty of plenty of studies that have looked at you know if you look at corner offices and Fortune 500 companies and female CEOs and that just the preponderance of former student athletes in right. the, in those roles. Yeah. And so we see it in we see it in medicine, we see it in surgery, and we see it across you know other kind of high powered fields. Yeah. Um, that that's yeah. There's whether or not they draw similar types of personalities and that's probably because athletics has has grown and developed that in us yeah have you been able to mentor female student athletes who are interested in medicine do you see them are they coming through the ranks or is it just kind of like they're not there and so i, I do see them and right. so you know i Interestingly, the way kind of my life at this point in sports medicine and my involvement with Yale Athletics is I, I spend the majority of my time with male athletes. Right. It's contact sports, that sort of thing. Um, but no, I mean, I have several undergraduate advisees, some who were formally, it, uh, formally assigned to me, mm -hmm. and others who, you know, get emails from here and there. And it's, right. it's very cool to sit down and be able to bring them into the OR, even just sit for coffee and right. re kind of almost, you know, kind of have have this conversation of you know it, it's a possibility we, it's a possibility and I mean it's, just, it's so weird to think that yeah that people are still wondering whether or not you can find that balance whether or yeah. not you can be a student-athlete and be pre-med yeah um, which to which my answer obviously is yes but you have to get you've got to get creative you can't yeah. be doing that in four years is very challenging yeah. and um so then the other side of it is it's also still surprising that not everybody feels that they see that around them and True. i think in our world here fortunately in our department we have you know we have female orthopedists around and it right. is not a uncommon Occurring, right? See it, right, and, it, and it's weird. It's this almost this world in which we get we forget what the outside yeah. um, views us as. Every once in a while, I'll get on the phone with a you know with a parent, and you they'll we get we get chatting and they get comfortable, and it'll come out that you know you're the first female orthopedist I've ever spoken to, and that's just a step that's astounding right. in 2019 that that's the case. Yeah. But we live in a little bit of a bubble up here yeah um, which but that's that's the goal grow the bubble grow the bubble grow the bubble <laughs> grow the bubble that's amazing and so i know that you 
knew from an early age that you wanted to do be a sports medicine physician. Was it simply because you played sports or what is it that drew you to being a sports medicine sh surgeon? So I think when you look back at it, so I was fortunate enough that I was healthy growing up, my family was healthy, and so we don't have any doctors in the family. So the only doctors I ever had to know were orthopedists through right. sports injuries. And so that, that, that was kind of medicine to me aside from, from my pediatrician. Mm -hmm. And so got here to Yale, obviously knew I liked sports. Um, I'm 5'2 on a good day and play two sports. Well, now there's a professional lacrosse league, but that didn't exist back then. And right. so realized the fact that, you know, if you asked me, my identity was as an athlete. Mm -hmm. All this medicine stuff and everything else was completely second. I was an athlete and that's yeah. to this day. That, that's still who at my core I feel like I am. Mm -hmm. And figuring out a way to continue to be a part of that world was really my goal. And I loved teaching and I loved coaching, you know, the two years that I did it, I was pretty good at it. Right. Um, but that wasn't going to be what I was gonna do long term. So as I always thought about it, came back, I was good at science, I enjoyed it. And then I saw what impact sports medicine doctors had, and it really was Dr. Jokel. Mm -hmm. You know, I spent every summer with him in college, first just shadowing around the office, walking Barb was there. Oh no. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. Love Barb. Yeah, love Barb. Um, so, you know, and that was back kind of in, in Yale sports medicine was a bigger deal then. And right. I, I remember being there one random day when Dr. Jokel got Sir Roger Bannister's hip x-rays <laughs> mailed him from England, because wow. this was like 97 or something like that. And in just, you know, looking and listening to him talk about it and just how methodical it was. And that then started to fit a little bit of that piece of my personality where it's, it's fixing things yeah. and it's facts and structure and tangible mm -hmm. goals and tangible things and tangible solutions, yeah. not management fix, 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 fix. Yeah, works for this. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I mean, it's it became a way to support the next generation of student athletes in the way that I then felt like I had been supported. I, I had a lot of injuries. I had five surgeries while I was an undergrad. No. Con I was booted for like four years oh, for shin splints and stress fractures and stuff. So yeah, oh, I, I was, I made it yeah. eight seasons, got through it, but that was because of my athletic trainers who I'm still very close with, strength and conditioning coaches, right. Dr. Jokel, all of these people, the team, the athletic medicine team yeah. here is why I got to have that experience. And so the opportunity to support current athletes and to lead that team, be part of that team, mm -hmm. to make sure that this four years that they have on this campus or you know, weekend warriors and quality of life and you know, high school, all levels, mm -hmm. just knowing what an important experience it is to be able to step on that field. Right or court or whatever mm -hmm. it is, there's just nothing better than that. Yeah. So oh. anyway, that's where that came from. That's so it's, amazing. It's kind of the cheesy story. No, I support it. I didn't care about, at least I'm not the ACL story. I know, you're not <laughs> the ACL story. I'm like, yay, oh my <laughs> word. Can you describe to our listeners what it is that you as a sports medicine surgeon, what it is that you do? So there, I think more, well, I don't know. Things, things are evolving with lots of different levels and different types of providers, musculoskeletal providers. Mm -hmm. So, but I think, you know, as a sports medicine surgeon, 
in some ways, we have been the general practitioners of orthopedics for a long time. Right. Um, so we really see in the, you know, adolescent through upper middle age-ish, um, really all the different types of wear and tear injuries, yeah. acute injuries, bumps, all that sort of thing. Um, certainly now as you look at it, it's becoming, you know, I think what most sports medicine surgeons are looking it's more acute injuries um sport associated sort of you know sport associated injuries mm -hmm. um but both surgical and non-surgical and i think that's something i don't know whether i'm i can't be old school seven years into practice um but maybe i'm old but i i enjoy having a conversation with patients about non-surgical aspects of this. I get a right. kick out of looking at somebody with hip pain and having them take off their shoes and talking to them about how their flat feet are affecting their knees and are affecting their hips mm -hmm. and that. So, I mean, I think what we what we do is we we keep people active and um, whether that's non-surgically with activity modification and looking you know look spending a lot of time looking at alignment and form mm -hmm. and movement patterns and you know working very closely with physical therapy and you know trainers and that all the way through surgical injuries which obviously in everybody is going to be a last resort but in a lot of athletes right you gotta do there. Gotta exactly do. yeah and and so then it's it's the structural side of things it is taking you know taking some structure you know tendon, ligament, whatever that's torn and bringing you back as close as you can anatomically and again then coming back to work with that team. So right. I think the, the thing that I love the most about sports medicine and obviously every doctor is part of a team but I think a sports medicine, you know, a sports medicine surgeon is really a part of a team. Mm -hmm. There, I, I say to ACL patients or anybody, you know, I'm important to you for one day and that's I real that's not total but you know, I yeah. will do my absolute best job for you on that day to set you up for success mm -hmm. but then you know it's the patient it's the physical therapist who's you know working physically but also working as you know their psychologist right it's the team it's their support team you know around them whether it's their parents or their you know their sibling whatever mm -hmm. it's so cool to be a one piece of that puzzle because that also then means you are constantly learning from all of these other people so mm -hmm. every day things are evolving and every day we approach things a little bit differently so I think I don't I got a little bit off of your question here in terms of what I, I, love do. It. I don't know it's if great. that answered it but it's but <laughs> it did yeah okay so we'll... what now so you talk about the benefits of being a sports medicine mm -hmm. surgeon what are some of the challenges that you face in your field so I mean it's obviously a very competitive field um, you know, there are lots of people who, you know, even within the surgical field, some, lots of people who do arthroscopy who aren't mm -hmm. necessarily sport, you know, sports trained. Um, within, within the greater field, lots of people call them sports medicine doctors now, you know. So it, I think it used to be that you said sports medicine that was synonymous with an orthopedist. Right. And that's not the case anymore. And certainly, you know, that there is, there's good reason for that. And, you know, the field of medicine has just exploded and there are so many, sports medicine used to just be about bones and muscles mm -hmm. and we didn't really understand all these other more like medical components to it. Right. And that goes beyond our level of expertise and it goes beyond what any one person can learn and train for anymore. Mm -hmm. um, so, that team is growing. 
and I, but I think that's a challenge. And I think that it's as, as roles get defined, and perhaps that's a little bit more within each individual unit, but just really figuring out who's the best person for each, each case and each patient and how you work together, um, it's the best and worst thing. Mm -hmm. Like I said, you're, you're constantly learning, but right. there are different schools of thought and, you know, surgeons, again, we got a hammer, everything's a nail. To, right. And it, it's an interesting dynamic. And I think that that's ebbing and flowing all over, you know, all over the country mm -hmm. um, as, as different types of musculoskeletal providers. Mm. This probably isn't a great conversation to include. Um, but um, yeah, so yeah, I'm not going to say holding our turf. That's not the right thing to say. <laughs> but no, it, it is. It's it's a it's a growing and at times crowded field, right? With lots of opinions, mm -hmm. and so when it comes to dealing with patients and especially with with athletes, it gets crowded. Right. And keeping not control, but just keeping tabs on everything that's going on and making sure that everybody is indeed working in the best interest of the athlete can be mm -hmm. challenging at times. Yeah. Because th these are ev who everybody wants to take care of, right? Right. I mean, this, is, this is, they're fun, they're driven, they're motivated, and most of them are going to get better. Yeah. Um, and so it's a great, it's best population in the world to deal with, but again, it, it comes with the challenges when you have lots of cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. And I remember you mentioned the fact that there was a patient's parent who had said you were the first female orthopedist that they had spoken to. When you came back here, or even um, if you could talk about, was it difficult to get the respect and you know the, the trust of patients, your student athletes, as well as parents? So certainly having been a student athlete here was invaluable. Right. And I think that that, and not just here like helped extra, but having been a student athlete, I hear that all the time from right. coaches or athletic administrators or parents or even kids. You know, when I get introduced or if somebody's kind of almost trying to, uh, you know, I'm being introduced and they're trying to like, you know, suggest that I'm good at my job. It's, well, she, she played sports here, she gets it. Right. It's that, you know, it, it's that she gets it factor mm -hmm. that I think that was the, that was essential. I think it would have been, I can only imagine how difficult it would have been to come in as a woman, especially right. into, you know, sports like football and lacrosse and that sort of thing, mm -hmm. not having, not having had that aspect of it. But I, right. I think that's, that's probably fair actually. Yeah. Um, I'm incredibly lucky that, as we've said, around around these parts, a female orthopedist is not unheard of. It's NBD. Yes, right. Um, well, in the university, you go outside of the university in private practice, there is not as many people around. True. Um, and so, but I was lucky that when I came back, um, the athletic director at the time had been my athletic director. Mm -hmm. And so he, he knew me when. Right. And he had heard, you know, I had spoken to him. He had been a mentor of mine over the years, knowing what I was looking to do mm -hmm. and hoping to grow our program. So he, he knew how passionate I was. Um, so that, I was incredibly fortunate there. And then as we've trans transitioned in, I mean, we amazingly now have a female athletic director. Right. And so that, she has been, she and her staff have been spectacular because again, same thing. Just yeah. not an issue. Right. Um, on the field, the coaches have been 
unbelievably welcoming. Um, and I think mm -hmm. it really, it start. I, I wasn't handed right. any of these sports. You know, I, when we started taking care of the Yale athletes, I was the absolute low man on the totem pole mm -hmm. and had none of the responsibilities that I do now. And so it really came with finding a place to make my name. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. Right. And so I think at that part, really having grown very organically rather than having been dropped in some place and everybody being told, mm -hmm. this is your person. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, she's a woman. It just started to find a place where I could make a difference. Mm -hmm. And through that, it became a non-issue because right. frankly, I was, you know, I was doing the job and doing it well. Mm -hmm. And yes, get on the phone with a parent and they don't realize that the Dr. Gardner, their son has been talking about mm -hmm. is a woman. Right. I, I mean, it's the same. I mean, you walk yeah. into, you walk into a patient room and it's the like, Oh, 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 huh. Huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And you do. Yes. And sometimes it gets verbalized. Right. It's like, yeah, nope, that's me. That here is we me. are. Yes, still Dr. good. Yeah, right here. Um, but so yeah, you still see it, but I think because it came about really, and I, I just slowly, earned that respect and I knew right. how the job should be done. I had trained very hard. I mean, it was a conscious decision to go to Michigan and mm -hmm. it was a conscious decision to work with Michigan football right. because you get some street cred from that. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know whether I was going to come back and work with Yale football, but there was a, there was a cachet there that had said, look, I, I know I didn't play your sport. Mm -hmm. I know most of the men taking care of you guys have never played your sport either, but that's its own deal. How could I possibly understand football without having played? Right. So, but but I was good enough to go work with Michigan football. And they have no idea how that process works or anything else. Right. That, was a, that was my choice to do it. That right. was not theirs, but my choice to do it. That to have that on my resume, to be able to wave that flag every once in a while when I needed to early on mm -hmm. and just kind of say, well, at Michigan, this is what we did. And you're good. Yeah. And again, not a man. I have no idea how it goes on the other side of things, but... I was very conscious in my choice mm -hmm. um, and making sure that I had those check boxes there right. checked so that I thought I'd need to mm -hmm. come back at, on them at some point. Right. And so again, I've been fortunate that that, that has mm -hmm. worked out and then it, it just became taking good care of the kids. Yeah. And here we are. Here we are. <laughs> and so I do want to transition uh, our topic of conversation and talk about imposter syndrome. Yes. This is something that you and I have talked about before. Yes. Um, in that imposter sy syndrome for just for review for our listeners, imposter syndrome is that feeling that you don't belong at the table. Um, you don't deserve that job. You don't deserve that award. I remember, you know, right now we're in residency interviews and I remember getting those emails and I'm like, wait, I don't, I don't deserve this. I don't, I shouldn't be getting an interview at that school, you know? And I think, um, I just wanted to talk to you about, do you think that female surgeons also succumb to this imposter syndrome? Yes. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, again, we have, we have talked about this and I do. I think, I think it's real. I still, right. I definitely still succumb. Mm -hmm. Um, I feel like it's getting better and better, but there is still just every once in a while that deep down mm -hmm. question of, you know, am I going to be found out? I, right. th I think that's the feeling that every once in a while I have. Or And it's interesting how it gets triggered by certain people. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I had 
an instance not that long ago in which we were in a conference talking about things with some people who I've known for a long time, mm -hmm. you know, both, you know, both male surgeons, and something got up, brought up that I do, I do something surgically different from, from the way that they do it. Yes. And I got it, like... Panic moment. Panic moment. Like, panic moment. I shut up very quickly because yeah. I was con completely convinced I'm wrong. Right. And we moved on. And mm -hmm then went home and texted every single one of my co-residents and co and everybody who I know who mm -hmm. still does this surgery and just said and not even and to the extent that like I didn't say what I did because mm -hmm. I was still so convinced what I did was wrong and then right. I was gonna be found out by these other people yeah and so it was the like hey so what do you what do you guys do with this and everybody replies back exactly what I do with right. it right and we had a nice little conversation and talked like, okay. And then and then you come bouncing back when it's like, oh, yeah, no, dude, I totally know what. Yeah. But there it is. Yeah. And it, it just, it gets triggered mm -hmm. and I haven't had that in a while. Yeah. Um, but it was really knowing we were going to be having this conversation and having Aaron, who's one of your co-residents, you know, mm -hmm. female, you know, resident on the service right now. We got talking about it in the OR. Right. Because it's when when does this when does this go away? Yeah, and I remember I, I certainly remember it happening all the time. Yeah, in you know in residency, but then as I got more and more comfortable, like by chief year, mm -hmm. like things were good. I felt like I belonged. I felt like people trusted me. Right, and then came back as an attending, and whew, like right, right back. back into the yeah. When am I going to be? I can't possibly be as well trained as everybody else. I don't mm -hmm. know as much as everybody else. Yeah, when am I going to be found out for, like, people like me, because I, like, you know, I, I can chat and mm -hmm. fun, like, <laughs> hang out, and, like, I can talk yeah. about stuff, but, like, when it comes down to it, and when you're the person, like, on the line, making right. the medical decision, who's going to operate on my child, I got to say, like, it's still my default is a little bit, and it's default, I, I, at this point, I call it my style, and I think mm -hmm. it's probably something that's more woman style than men, but it's just to be very self-deprecating about right. it, and right. very much like assume, nope, like, nope, your child, probably going to want your child to have surgery, you know, at home, mm -hmm. and I understand that, as opposed to, you know, most male colleagues who I think I know, mm -hmm. who would lead with the default being, I'm your guy. Right. No, it's so true. It's so true. Like, especially, like, what I notice is, like, when someone, when I've made, I'm on consults right now. And yeah. so whenever I make a decision and someone says, well, why did you do that? And my immediate thought is not, like, I have 100% confidence in what I did, even though it's 100% right, right. And the patient's great for it, da 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 da, yeah. da My first instinct is, like, oh, no, like, what have I done? But at the end of the day, it's it's weird how my first thought is not oh my God, no, I'm 100% right. It's that like, well, what if? Okay, right. And not to turn this back on, but do you notice that that is a different reaction, whether it's a male or female asking you that question? I have not thought about that. But no, I think you're right. Because usually, usually it's more like a discussion. Well, like, because it, it's more of a, like, right. so why would you do that? And I'm like, well, right. this is what I was thinking. Or if it, it was one of my male colleagues, I'm like, well, now that you're mentioning that, and I'm just like, it's it's a different right. conversation. And it's hard. I mean, yeah, I mean, because I, I feel exactly the same way. Even if we're in the OR mm -hmm. and somebody asks a question of, like, you know, whether why you do it this way or what about doing this. Mm -hmm. And I don't think I can totally put it on 
the person delivering, you know, their right. tone right. or approach, anything like that. I mean, I think some, a lot of that is how I interpret it. Mm -hmm. And I feel it. Yeah. I think there's a part of me that feels it a little bit differently. Yeah. Depending on who it comes from. Yeah. And. Mm. How do we, how do we tackle this, Dr. Gardner? How do we, how do we? How do we how <laughs> <laughs> oh my Let word. Let me know. We're get, but, I know. But it does, I mean, certainly what I've noticed is what's nice is when you go to those places i think the more times you come back and feel validated or the more times you question yourself but then you know whether it's something that actually has gone wrong mm -hmm. or seem or you know when you then get that positive reinforcement both for yourself but also from other people right that's where it starts to be like okay you know like i i do fit nobody's perfect mm -hmm. i do know what i'm talking about yeah, but yeah. every once in a while. Every yeah, a couple, couple weeks ago. I was like, where are How? <laughs> How are we back here? I know. But I know. Awesome. So I do want to talk about um, being the only woman in the room. Mm -hmm. um, and as you had mentioned, you know, you're kind of uh, had experiences where parents tell you, um, you know, you're the first female orthopedist I've seen. And I remember I've had a moment where I was doing a hip reduction and I felt this enormous pressure of, if I do not reduce this hip, one of my male colleagues could have done it. And people are gonna think, oh, it's just because she doesn't have the strength to do it. And even in this situation, this ED attending was literally like, do you want me to like hold, hold the, leg. the leg? And I'm just <laughs> like, and it's, sometimes I feel that like the entire gender, like all female orthopods are on my shoulders in this one reduction. And I was wondering if you ever have that same feeling as well, where you're just like, well, got, got to do this for the gender, got to do this for the lady pods. Uh, absolutely. No, I mean, I, th I think, you know, we, when I was coming through residency like you, I mean, we were fortunate that we had a number of female residents. Right. And so, you know, lots of pe people had different styles. We were all very, very different. But to, you know, you, you learn those tips and those tricks from, from yes. the older residents, yes. older female residents. Because it, it is that, you know, I think the, the benefits in some ways of being a female resident is that like when you, if you're killing it and doing mm -hmm. great, like it's extra easy to shine. Well, right. Not easy to send them, yeah. But you know, but <laughs> it's- Deservedly so. Yes, exactly. Yes. But it's, it's noteworthy and it, there gets to be attention drawn to that. But on the flip side, you're right. You know, you are representing seemingly and stupidly, mm -hmm. but de facto representing all women who are doing this with your one reduction. Right. And, and that's, it's completely asinine, but I think we all feel it. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is needing to be perfect all the time because if you're doing it well, well, you're basically just doing it as well as the men are. Right. And then if you're not, well, forget all the reductions that they couldn't get because they're irreducible or because they're idiots and pulling to, you know, whatever. Right. You couldn't get it because you're not strong enough or something that is the stereotypical, yes. you know, attribute to a man that, a, you know, a woman couldn't possibly have. And so, no, I mean, I think you see it certainly being in, you know, in football, in, in contact sports and that. I do. I mean, it, it seems like, you know, again, I'm very lucky that I feel extraordinarily well supported here. Right. But I always do wonder what would happen if if there were somebody running up my coattails mm -hmm. 
who's, you know, of the other gender. Right. Who comes in and all of a sudden I don't, I can't do something or something doesn't go exactly as planned or whatever. Mm -hmm. Is it easier to default on over to the man? Right. Even in this situation. So. Yeah. Does it get better? I think in some, I got to say, in some ways, I, it, I think it feels different. I mean, mm. I think the responsibility I feel to certainly younger female orthopedists, residents, right. med students, undergrads, that sort of thing, is, is it's grow like I, that responsibility to me is growing and that mm-hmm. burden is not exact, it's not it, but I, I feel a great, great need to help right and so I think in some of that is by it, it's less that they're on my back with every clinical decision I make mm-hmm. and, but it is more that showing them and being that example and so yes yeah, so I, I don't feel the weight in the way that you do in which I totally remember in the ER in right. every single way yeah you know, right, because it's the hip reduction that you don't get that gets talked about, not the guy who, like, completely skinned the 85-year-old woman's hand because he was a moron when he reduced her distal radius. Right. No one talks about the fact that that was wrong. Right. And then you turn and look at the hip, and it's probably was irreducible. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so it, it's different. I think it evolves, and, it, yeah, it becomes less about your individual clinical decisions. Mm-hmm. But also that's because I'm in a place, as I said, where I do feel incredibly well supported and that I don't feel like being a female orthopedist day to day is a thing. Right. Which is incredibly fortunate. Yes, we are very, very lucky. (laughs) (laughs) So speaking of Yale, speaking of Yale Athletics, Mm -hmm. what are your future goals and projects just in terms of both in the hospital Mm -hmm. as well as outside the hospital? So, I mean, I think, you know, we're in ex- exciting times. We have a new female chair. It's a female chair, which is very exciting. So I think, you know, there, there just really is a, you know, there's a renewed sense of energy and a, in, in a sense of direction in terms of where we're going at this right. point. And, you know, I am very hopeful and optimistic that really growing sports medicine mm-hmm. and athletic medicine is gonna, is a part of that vision. You know, right. looking at, as I've said, you know, looking at, to me, the way you do sports medicine better is by less about the surgery. You know, yes, there are technical pearls and things we can do mm-hmm. and always trying to make advances, but a large part of what we're doing surgically is actually not that difficult. Right. You need to do it right, you put the mm-hmm. tunnels in the right place, you need to repair the tendon well, but really the art of it and where you have the ability to affect patients' outcomes mm-hmm. as well as to drive the field is in everything else that surrounds it. Right. So what I'm looking forward to and what I hope we're, we're moving towards is really much more of that academic team approach. Mm-hmm both for sports medicine as it means kind of as an orthopedic field, but then athletic medicine as it relates to the athletes as well. As well. And how do, we, how do we have that team that we have for the athletes? You know, that's been kind of my little Petri dish for the last few years mm-hmm. where, you know, we've been able to build a collaborative team of strength and conditioning and athletic mm-hmm. training and physical therapy. And we do a lot, 
do lots of different types of testing and functional testing and injury prevention and all of these sorts of things on a small scale. How do we scale this up? Because that isn't something that's just applicable to a D1 athlete. Like, more, we can do that better. Right. And then number two, that is how you do, that's what sports medicine for everybody should be. Mm-hmm. And that's how, probably going to have less surgeries. It's how you're going to have happier, healthier patients with right. better outcomes mm-hmm. is not going to be by me standing out there yelling that I do the surgery better than somebody else. It's going to be by having that team, integrated team around us where from day one mm-hmm. everybody's on the same page and we're not passionate patients back and forth across town. Mm-hmm. We're all there together driving that, you know, driving the care yeah. of that patient and we all have equal ownership in that patient's recovery. Right. So that's where I want to go. I love it. Cool. Cool. Now, the final five. Yes. I This is the last five questions that I ask of every person yep. who has been on the show thus far. Okay. So what is your favorite procedure to perform and why? It is totally random. Um, mm-hmm. I like distal biceps tendon repair. Really? Yeah, I don't know why. Okay. Yeah. There's just, tendon surgery to me is the epitome of sports medicine, aside from fractures. Right, like right. Fractu- fractures, fractures are awesome. Like right. th- There's still something really great about an ankle fracture. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry. And, and that's, I hope I never give up doing those. Right. And I, I really, like our quarterback who just was named the offensive MVP of the league had an ankle fracture last year and like trying to explain to people that like that was sporty. Yeah. It's real nice. <laughs> um, so, but, so, but aside from fractures, which obviously is the true epitome of orthopedics, this is the epitome of sports medicine is tendon surgery. And mm-hmm. there's just something about tendon torn, tendon fixed that's like phenomenal. And it's just so slick. Yeah. It, it's... Have we done any? No. Oh, it's good. Oh, yeah, so I'm, it's nice. Uh, yeah, it's just, it's, you know, especially when they're like really retracted up the mm-hmm. arm. You go, you find a little worm of a tendon, you pass it back down there, mm-hmm. you drill a hole. It's so simple in the technology. Right. We're not like doing like sponsor stuff, but like just using, like the concept of using a button. Yeah. How genius that is. It is the simplest thing out there, but mm-hmm. it is so powerful. Yeah. It, it's you know, putting the screw and it's just I don't know it, it's like it's nice it goes well um, patients do really well and yeah. it's yeah and it's and honestly because I work in a you know because we're in an academic institution I think it's nice as everybody gets to see you know the resident can see it everybody's mm-hmm. involved it, it's a nice simple straightforward very principle based yeah. surgery. I told you it's random. No, I support it. Okay. Um, second question. What are your go-to topics for Grand Round presentations? All right. So I thought about this one a little bit. A couple different ways to go. Mm-hmm. But um, what I settled on is... <laughs> There's no right or wrong no, answer. No, 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 no. But I mean, it's... Yeah. <laughs> understood. No. So perhaps this is more like what my favorite Grand Rounds presentation that I've given has been. And... It started, so it was a a conversation, kind of a PRP update. Oh. Okay. Mm -hmm. Right. So, a little bit sporty. Yeah. That's that's where it came from, and that really was... I remember that one. Yeah. That was so good. And it's really where, like, that's where it started from, was like, I do sports medicine, let's talk about PRP to a bunch of, like, 
you know, academic orthopedists who don't necessarily know much about PRP. Right. That was the goal. Yeah. And just kind of, uh, you know, residents, what is it? Otherwise, update, where are we? And what it became that I thought was really interesting was much more of a conversation, almost an ethical conversation, about where we are at with the data behind this Mm -hmm. and how that governs what we present to patients as their options. And how when you look at it, when we all know the reasons why it's very, very difficult to study PRP, and we also fully admit, like we don't have slam, not even slam dunk data. Mm -hmm. We don't have consistent data saying what it does. We don't know what in there is working. Obviously we have no dose, any sort of sense of dosing, all of this. I completely understand and agree like all of the problems. It is a extraordinarily thing, hard thing to study. Mm-hmm. But then you look at so much else of what we do in orthopedics doesn't have great data behind it. True. And you look at things like visco supplementation, mm-hmm. you know, which we have data for the old guys with, you know, with arthritis. I think a lot of us in sports medicine, I use it all the time for patellofemoral pain and there's just a well-done study that came out that isn't supporting us in it. And I, we all thought it was going to be great because mm-hmm. anecdotally it works. I have so many student athletes who who use it and it mm-hmm. works great. They couldn't live without it. Wow. But we don't have great data behind that. Yet we don't have any problem. Mm-hmm. No one in the audience has any problem presenting that as a little bit of an outside the box, but an option to their patients because in many cases we can get it covered by insurance. Mm-hmm. And then we come around to something else that requires out-of-pocket expenditure and may not have, you know, we can argue the tit mm-hmm. for tat of how much data is behind it, but really the downsides of it are almost purely financial. And how many people in that audience, our faculty members, would be unwilling to have that conversation as part of a complete conversation about what the treatment options are for any of the indicated pathologies? You know, basically nobody said they would bring this up to their young patients with early knee arthritis. Yeah. And what? But and, and so what is that? Long, long way from our little sporty PRP topic, but it just, it became something really interesting that, yeah. so we are now putting, we are now assuming judgment of what our patients want to know about mm-hmm. and what it's worth it to them. Right. And I, I just, yeah. it was very, I thought I really. I loved it. It, it yeah, was it so ev- cool. It evolved and yeah. it was something now that actually comes up a lot and when I'm then talking about it to patients, I actually often will talk about yeah. this, that, you know, look, I know that this may not be an option for you, but I think it's important for you to understand mm-hmm. that this is out there. Right. Here's what we know. We need. To, we'll educate you more in terms of deciding whether or not this is worth it to you because it does have a different cost associated with it. It's not just a risk cost, which mm-hmm. is lower than almost anything else we give these patients. Um, but there's financial, and mm-hmm. but it's not our job to assume that risk-benefit analysis for our patients, I yeah. don't think. So anyway, yeah. so yeah, that's, that's my favorite grammar. I know that, oh, I, I had such great, cause you, I, I remember I was an intern when uh-huh. you gave it and it was, it was, it like blew my mind. Cause that we're, we're and it, be, it was very organic too. Like it, it was so organic how this whole thing spewed off. Yeah. And I was just like, oh my God, right. this is amazing. And it was the, it was the, yeah older generation front, front left corner. Right. Um, that just, and you, you just saw that that is, no, no, we we don't do this. And it was, you you shouldn't. Um, And it was was interesting. It was was awesome. Um, Question number three, what is your favorite story slash memory as an orthopedic surgeon? 
this is always the toughest one. I know. Well, I don't know that, but I got gotcha. you. <laughs> <laughs> we have to do this in order. No, we can come back let's, to it. Let's come back to that. We can we'll come see. back to okay. it. All right. Next question. What are your favorite activities outside of the operating room and outside of medicine? So I'll caveat this with the fact that balance is not my forte. Mm-hmm. Um, so certainly, I mean, outside of the outside of the operating room, I. It, it kind of it's the same thing, but I, I just I love talking to patients. I mean, I yeah. run horribly late in my clinics all the time um, because I, just, I get chatting and I like right. to I I like to talk to patients about what they like to do. Mm-hmm. And to me, I am essentially a preserver of quality of life. Right. And so I, I just but I love those most of the time love those conversations um and so that's outside the or and maybe that's abnormal for for a surgeon to like that it certainly doesn't lead me to uh cranking patients through clinic efficiently um but i I love that aspect of medicine and then that comes i guess that then translates you know certainly athletically what i love most about my role with yale athletics is the relationships to Mm -hmm. me it is all about, it's just about the relationships. It's not about the surgery. It, it is about getting to know those kids and supporting them in their dreams and getting them to know their families and, mm-hmm. you know, what an honor. I mean, I suppose in some ways this is, I don't know if favorites, this doesn't become a memory, but she's trying to double team these. Um, you can if you want to. No, no, no it's okay. <laughs> um, but, I mean, just how amazing it is every time you talk to a kid or a parent and they you know you really realize that you have built that relationship with them right and how it allows what we then can do when you have that trust Mm -hmm. that we now get to get away from the cookie cutter textbook medicine and start to have the fun art side of athletic medicine which is awesome i mean and that to me is when we get to do something that's a little bit outside Mm -hmm normal and push the boundaries a little mm-hmm. bit um that is that's it like that yeah. is the biggest that is my favorite thing mm-hmm. um outside of medicine um I, I i mean i think like all of us i like being outside i like being active right. you know i don't run as much as i used to but whether it's you know skiing i grew mm-hmm. up up in the mountains and so just being outside and hiking mm-hmm. and yeah, that's outdoors. That's outdoors. I support. Yes. All right. Do you want to come back to number three? Yes. Okay. So, in terms of my favorite memory as an orthopedic surgeon, um, it was not. It, it was well publicized. So, um, my I don't know three four years ago, it was kind of back as we were talking about just really starting to find a place within within athletics where I could make a name for myself and mm-hmm. just do things the way I thought that they should be done without anybody else kind of tinkering and start spending a lot of time with the men's lacrosse team here, who, who was good. They'd been terrible when I was an undergrad and all the guys have a hard time, you know, the guys who now are national champions mm-hmm. have a hard time believing that when I, you know, when I was here, when right. I was playing, we were the lacrosse team on campus and now, now they're national champions, but it's a good thing to remind them that things mm-hmm. have been flow. So I started spending um, a fair bit of time with them, and you know it's contact sport. It's you know we'll play on turf, and 
one of the early games that I was at, one of our defenders went down. And mm. I don't know who these guys are very well. Um, but, you know, comes off, evaluate him, and it's one of those, like, sideline obvious mm-hmm. ACL tears. Right. And the way the coach is looking at me, the way the athletic trainer is looking at me, I'm going to start to realize that, like, this kid's... Yeah. This kid's a big deal. And yeah. up, he's a first-team All-American. He's our captain. We have one captain at Yale, and he's it. And to this day, one of the most amazing people I've ever met. And, you know, he he looked me in the eye at that point. He's a senior, and he's mm-hmm. like, I'm going to play. And uh, I'm new at this. I'm the low <laughs> man on the totem pole. Right. And, you know, just I, we haven't done this before. And mm-hmm. um, so, anyway, so what we basically work on. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. We're going to get an MRI. We're going to understand where we're at. we got to get, got to get mm-hmm. you feeling good. This knee's going to swell up. So we kind of go through this whole process. And that was, oh, no, six, eight weeks before the end of the season or so. And basically, as we end up progressing, built an extraordinarily close relationship with his parents and mm-hmm. with his family and just le- came to learn, like, what an amazing kid, guy, you know, young yeah. man that he was and what his aspirations are and how much lacrosse meant to him and really got to have one of, you know, one of the best risk-benefit conversations you're ever going to have. And that mm-hmm. was to sit down there with a senior student-athlete a few weeks away from the end of his season one way or another and talk about what we were going to do about this. Because if yeah. we, there, there's no surgery in coming back from it. We don't do red shirts. It was too far mm-hmm. along in the season. And ultimately, um, we decided to allow him to progress along a return-to-play protocol. Mm-hmm. And so we had all the same normal benchmarks that you have to hit in order to come back from an ACL reconstruction surgery. And there were lots of raised eyebrows um, medically um, from a lot of people who are, you know, older than me and just had different kind of opinions, but kind of kept checking in at Mm -hmm. all points along the way, said, you know, look, there are risks to this. Mm -hmm. There are benefits if we pull this off. Um, And ultimately... um, so we got him back out on the field, and he not only played, he was spectacular. Um, and on his senior day, um, all of his parents came, you know, his parents and his grandparents, wonderful big family, came on down to the field. I'm just kind of standing there on the sidelines as I am, trying to stay out of the way. And his grandmother came up and found me, who I had not met, mm-hmm. um, came up and found me, gave me a huge hug, oh. and thanked me for allowing her grandson to be back out on that field. Mm. And I'm not an emotional person at all. Um, And to this day, when people kind of ask me how I knew that that was the right thing to do, Mm -hmm. it it was at that moment. There was no, when grandma comes up Mm. and you've built that kind of relationship and that kind of trust with the family for a non-surgical Right, non-surgical management. Non-surgical management. That, that was, that's it. Like, that is everything I wanted to accomplish in sports medicine. And frankly, as an orthopedic surgeon, right. was to be able to look at this and know that the textbook answer to this was one thing. But there's a conversation around everything. Yeah. And knowing, and, and taking the leap of faith. And that started because I had a good relationship with the kid and with the athletic mm-hmm. trainers and with the coaches and with everybody else. And so every step of the way, we paused and we made sure it was still the right decision for everybody involved and did not proceed blindly, but we kept moving along. And with that, 
grew the mounting evidence that what we were doing, you know, medical evidence that what we were doing was right, his stability was back. We, you know, ran him through motion capture and ran right. him up and down the field and like watched and he passed all of his return to play tests. We had that objective evidence. But still, I mean, anybody who wants to question you can question you at any point and you get right into that, yeah. fall back into your, you know, imposter, not even imposter syndrome. Anybody can question you for playing a kid with an ACL tear. But knowing in the end what a difference that made. I mean, we're sitting here having this conversation with, you know, I this know. picture that he gave me, you know, of him playing in that last game out there. And, like, we're still incredibly close oh. um, because that gave him back, you know, his senior year and he got to finish on the field yeah. in the way that he wanted to. And he was the best player on the field in his last game. That's an amazing story. Yay. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Dr. Gardner, I had no idea. Oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Yeah, he's such a badass kid. Ugh. I love that kid. That's awesome. Yep. All right. Last question. Yep. What advice do you have for orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic surgeons in training? Generally. Generally. Or, or specific, whatever you prefer. So, I think it probably has, and again, we've talked a little bit about just kind of a style and how much, again, I very much feel this is a relationship right. position and we're about quality of life. And so I think I think a lot of times, and perhaps it's because of like the meathead stereotype um, of orthopedists, and that, and that certainly is no longer true most places. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't look gender-wise a whole lot less big meaty guys in right. orthopedics. There's still plenty, but think things have grown and we've evolved as a field and we've become, you know, much more academic and and that. But I think that remembering that what our goals are and what our goals are need to be aligned with what our patients' goals are. And that means mm-hmm. you gotta talk to them. Yeah. And you do have to we, we tend to get the bone broke, bone fixed, you know, knowing looking at the imaging and knowing that we already have our indications set. And I like that we're very practical sometimes and mm-hmm. that, that becomes very clear, you, you gotta. Right. But that's not true most of the time. And I like that, you know, when you're taking consults with Dr. Baumgartner, right? Like he wants to know things, you know, it's how many stairs yes. they have in their house, but yes. then it's, do they balance their checkbook? Because he ever asked you that one? No, yeah. yeah. So just these, who are we dealing with? You're coming to talk to me about a tibial plateau fracture or a an ACL or a rotator cuff. Mm-hmm. Who's that attached to? Right. Who are they? Because I lead almost all of my likely pre-surgical conversations with this that a lot of people kind of look at me and but I'm like, no one's ever died from this. Right. Ever from an ACL tear, from a rotator cuff, from a meniscus, all of these things that people think, I gotta have surgery, I gotta, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. We are incredibly lucky that we don't, outside of tumor, mm-hmm. and, and there are, you know, obviously there are things that have very strict indications, but in general, we get to work with our patients to optimize their care for what they want to do and what their goals are. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that means being extraordinarily aggressive in something that you that you know normally you right. know athletic wise yeah sometimes you know i've done some surgeries on you know athletes of you know 
cleaning up tendons and just things that like, I mean, but for them, that enables them to do what they love to do and what they need to do. They need to get from 98 to not to 100% and that right. 2% matters to them. Whereas in other patients, it just may not and the risk of surgery and the time away from work or the time away from their life or gardening or whatever it is that you're going to take from them in exchange for getting them a whole lot more than that 2% you're getting that athlete right. in your mind may not be a worthwhile trade at all mm. for them. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think it's keeping that in mind. It's something we all... Every one of us has to remember every once in a while because, yeah, we, we're lucky we get imaging. We get a lot of pictures to mm -hmm. look at, and you think you got the whole story walking into the room. And reminding ourselves that our job is to match mm -hmm. the right treatment um, with the patient. And, again, I think that's why, you know, we are not – we need to make sure that we are not just surgeons. Mm -hmm. And we don't want to be viewed as just surgeons because we have all of the options in our armamentarium. We are the only ones who span all the way. Right. But if we don't remain experts and remain excited, um, um, you know, to talk about and to find those non-surgical options when appropriate, right? We're not doing anybody any service. Yeah. Dr. Gardner. Thank you so much. Thank you. This was amazing. I know. This was awesome. I hope everybody enjoyed this episode of the She Can Fix It podcast with Dr. Liz Gardner. Please subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or YouTube. You can find us on the web at shecanfixitpod.com. We're on Twitter and Instagram at She Can Fix It Pod. Finally, I want to say thank you to all the listeners who are taking the time to listen to our podcast. I know we are all very busy people, so I do sincerely appreciate it. Please subscribe to wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please also spread the word. Tell your friends, your mentors, your medical students. If you have any questions or would like to hear a friend, mentor, legend on this podcast, please feel free to email us at shecanfixitpod at gmail.com. And finally, many, many thanks to my editor and co-producer, Andrea Vanny Kirk, without whom this podcast could not be possible. Mm -hmm.